we're going to think this morning about this man Simeon who's introduced to us in Luke's gospel at verse 25 of the second chapter. Everything that we know about Simeon is contained in verses 25 and 26. We know nothing more, but we really know an awful lot. What I want to do this morning in terms of the structure of this message is a a little bit uh, not like normal, in that we're going to have a long introduction, and then I'm going to conclude with three shorter points. Actually, the introduction is longer than the three points combined. Because I want us to explain, I want us to understand something of what's going on here with this man, Simeon. He was what we might call an Old Testament believer, even though we read about him in the New Testament. Because Jesus hasn't yet gone to Calvary. What does it mean to be an Old Testament believer? Well, the Apostle Paul taught very clearly that although the nation of Israel had occupied this very special and unique place in God's unfolding plan, to be a true child of Israel involved more than simply being born a Jew. So let's just go back a little bit and track things through. God himself established the nation of Israel, a nation that previously did not exist. He, he established this brand new nation, all of his own. And of course, he does it from the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And God established that nation for some very specific reasons and purposes. This nation, in the midst of pagan nations would demonstrate that there is just one true and living God. A God who is holy and righteous and good. The one who is the sovereign creator over all things and who is king of kings and lord of lords. In the midst of all that pagan worship, God would establish that through this nation. To this nation of Israel, God would make himself known and he would reveal to them his being, his nature, his attributes and also his will and his purposes. To Israel, God would make known what he requires of us as mankind, as his creation. And to Israel, he gave his laws and his commandments that they might live his way. They they received instruction as to how God is to be worshipped because we're not at liberty to decide that for ourselves. To Israel, God would make clear the origin and the nature and the consequences of sin. And through them, he would demonstrate how high is the bar for righteousness, how far short of that we have fallen, and how severe is the judgment and punishment for sin 
because of our rebellion and disobedience. All of these things are being made known to us through this nation, Israel. And through his dealings with Israel, he also shows himself to be a God of everlasting love and compassion and mercy and grace and faithfulness, a God who can be trusted. He shows himself to be a God who, though our sins be scarlet and red like crimson, against which his anger burns hot, he nevertheless is slow to anger and he's tender and he's patient and he receives us back when we're repentant. To this nation of Israel, through this nation Israel, God has made all of these things known and much more beside. And by that nation gives us the Old Testament scriptures. And of all the things that the Old Testament teaches us, the most wonderful thing of all is a promised salvation and a coming Messiah and Saviour who will be not just for Israel, but actually for the whole world. He will be born into the nation of Israel in fulfilment of all that has been promised and prophesied. And so Christ's birth and his subsequent life, his death, his resurrection, all of that is the culmination of everything that's gone before in the Old Testament. This is what makes the gospel so compelling. Jesus doesn't simply arrive out of nowhere with no context and with no explanation as to who he is, where he's come from, or why he came. And without the comprehensive context that the Old Testament gives us, we'd actually struggle to understand what the New Testament is all about. But the Old Testament provides us with everything that we need to understand who this Jesus is. Now, many Jews, they assumed that simply by virtue of having been born into this nation of Israel, they already had everything that was necessary to be part of this grand plan of God and to automatically be included in all the benefits that God has for those who are his people. Well, I'm born a Jew, so that surely must be enough. But the Apostle Paul, himself a Jew and a very well-taught Jew, said an emphatic, no, that's not the case. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, he wrote in Romans. They are not all children just because they are the seed of Abraham. They're ignorant of God's righteousness and they seek to establish a righteousness of their own. And they didn't attain that righteousness because they did not seek it by faith. 
those things Paul teaches in Romans chapters 9 and 10. But there were those in Israel, both in the Old Testament and at the start of the New Testament, there were those in Israel who were men and women of faith. It began with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Samuel and David and one or two of the kings that followed and men like Elijah and Elisha and the prophets whose books are recorded for us in the Bible. Men and women who loved God and who by faith gave themselves to God and who sought to live according to all that God commanded. And Paul teaches that it's the issue of faith that is the key. It always has been, all through the Old Testament. Faith is the key. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul takes up that theme using Abraham as an example. Now, you might like to go home and read the whole of Romans chapter 4 this afternoon, but let me just give you a few extracts from what Paul says in Romans 4. He says at verse 3, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Abraham had faith in God. He believed God. He took God at his word. Verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. Because it was faith that was the issue that he might be the father of all those who believe Belief and faith are very closely linked, you see. Those who believe, though they're uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of uncircumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You see, it's having faith in God, not simply being born a Jew that is the issue. It always has been, Paul is teaching here. And then finally, Romans 4 verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. And Paul is saying, it's always been that way in Israel. But there have been lots of Jews who haven't had that faith and they haven't known God's grace consequently. But such men and women could be found in Israel and in them 
was an understanding of their need of salvation and that only God could save them from their sins and who believed the Old Testament promises of salvation and of a coming Messiah. And they believed it. And that's what their faith was in. Such a man was Simeon. That's who this Simeon was. A man of faith. A man who took God as his word and was looking for that promised one who was his hope of salvation in God. So when we read that Simeon was just and devout, we have to understand that that's speaking of a man of faith who loved God, who believed in God, who trusted in God, and who sought to live a life of obedience to God, a life pleasing to God by faith. Exactly the same faith that you are called to put in Christ. That's who Simeon was. He's an Old Testament believer. And most wonderful of all is this revelation that Simeon has received that we'll come to in a moment. But this is what makes an Old Testament believer a true child of Abraham, a true child of Israel, a true child of God. Faith. But they were believers on the opposite side of the cross in terms of time and history. Here we are 2,000 years after Christ died and we look back at Calvary and there we see Christ. They were still looking forward to Calvary in anticipation of it and with certainty that it was coming. So their hope is in exactly the same thing that our hope is in. Their faith is exactly the same faith that, that we have except they are looking forward to it in anticipation and we, are, we can look back to it in history and say, yes, there it was. But this man, Simeon, that's where his faith lies. He knows it's coming. Such a man was Simeon, just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel, which is Christ the Holy Spirit being upon him because Old Testament believers were just as much in need of the Holy Spirit as you and I are today looking to see the promised Christ. Now Simeon we read has been given this very special promise and assurance by God and it's included in the narrative of scripture for our benefit and for our encouragement. And Simeon, as with so many other things in the story of Christ's nativity, Simeon is used by God to provide yet another declaration and another confirmation of the identity of this newborn baby. Because when Jesus comes to the temple, he's just 40, maybe 41 days old. And there Simeon makes this great declaration about who he is. And Joseph and Mary take this relatively short journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem 
to make their required offerings before the Lord in the temple. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 12. It's quite a short chapter and it it talks just about that, what parents must do uh, once their child has been born in terms of giving offerings. And interestingly, it says that really what should be brought is a year-old lamb. But if they can't afford a lamb, then they can bring two birds. And interestingly, in Luke, do you notice how it just mentions the birds only and not the lamb? which probably is a confirmation of the poor state of Joseph and Mary. They were not very rich. They probably couldn't afford a lamb, so they just bring the two birds that are allowed as an alternative. How helpful all these little details are. And verse 27 of Luke chapter 2 tells us that God by his spirit, takes Simeon into the temple. And God ensures that their paths cross. God ensures that Simeon is there the day that Joseph and Mary arrive with Jesus. They would have only been there for the day, maybe just for several hours. And God ensures that Simeon is there. He causes their paths to cross. Now, that on its own is a glorious topic for a sermon, although it's not my main theme this morning. But I want to say a few things about that. How many times has God directed and guided and caused your path to cross the path of another? We'll probably never know. Probably far more often than we've ever realised In Proverbs we read that a man in his heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And in Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. How many times might it be that God has caused your path to cross the path of another and God is behind it? Chance meetings and happenings, startling coincidences, means by which God brings encouragement and comfort and strength and assurance and provision, or maybe even rebuke, or maybe opportunity for witness. Is God not directing your every step? Remember occasion when my brother was travelling home from London on the train, um, thinking that maybe a recent job he'd taken was not working out the way it should do, and rang his old boss to see if there might still be openings back at his old company. And they chatted for quite a few minutes. Towards the end of the conversation, they discovered that they were both on the same train. And they were able to, and they both parked in the same car park at Runcorn Station. So they were able to meet up face to face. God causes our paths to cross with others sometimes. At the same time, a word of warning. Do remember that such things must not be taken out of context and such things must not be given too much prominence or influence. Don't, for example, 
read something to be a sign from God as a confirmation of something, when all the advice and counsel that you've received beforehand, and even the Bible, suggests the opposite. But no, you're going to forget all of that, and I'm going to focus on this. This is the sign God has given me. Forget about the, adv- the advice, forget about the counsel, forget about what the Bible says, here's the sign. That's a very dangerous place to put yourself in. So we need to be careful. Because you see, whilst Simeon's path is crossing with Joseph and Mary that day, notice the background and the context for Simeon's being in the temple. That's really important. Why he's there at that particular time on that particular day. It didn't just come out of the blue. There's a long background to this. This is maybe years Simeon has been waiting for this day. Maybe decades Simeon's been waiting for this day. We don't know, we're not told. But the context and the background to the event is important. And the event is in keeping and in context with all that's gone before. And all of that's very important when we think about how we might try to interpret events that have occurred in our own lives. Because we're always prone to drawing wrong conclusions and we're always prone to making dangerous assumptions that are not correct. Believing that something is of the Lord when it's no such thing. Because we've taken it completely out of any context whatsoever. So be careful with these things. But the Lord has brought the paths of these two to cross in a very clear and remarkable way on that day in the temple in Jerusalem. And here is Simeon face to face, actually able to hold in his arms the one he's been waiting for. Isn't God so gracious to this man? Well, I said it would be a long introduction. There we go. But hopefully now we're in a good position to consider properly and more effectively what it is that Simeon now says. And we're going to concentrate on just these few verses as Simeon speaks, as he's holding Christ. And three concluding points as we concentrate our thoughts on verses 29 to 30. So let's just remind ourselves what it was that Simeon actually said there in Luke chapter 2. As he holds Christ in his arms, Lord, now you are letting your servants depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Well, three things to say about what Simeon says here. Number one, assurance and peace. Assurance and peace. Has any man ever had a greater sense of assurance than Simeon did that day? I doubt it. Now, Simeon had never doubted that it could ever be any other way, but God has proven himself and fulfilled his promise 
to him. Now the promise itself must have been a source of assurance to Simeon because of who it was who gave the promise and Simeon's a man of faith. But how much greater still is the fulfilment of that promise to this man? And Simeon's soul is flooded with that most rare commodity that the angels declared back in verse 14 of this same chapter. Peace. Peace. Simeon is a man at peace because he's convinced about Christ. Have you thought about that? Simeon is a man at peace because he's convinced about Christ. Being assured of Christ will always bring peace. And if you're seeking peace, then the only way to find lasting and certain peace is to be convinced in the one who is the everlasting and certain saviour. Real lasting peace will only be found when you become convinced of Christ. At that moment in the temple, all of the things of this world grew strangely dim for Simeon in the light of the glory and grace of Christ. To be sure of Christ, to be convinced of a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son in order to redeem and reconcile sinful men and women. There is a place of great peace. To know that all of your sins have been dealt with by Christ and that in him there is forgiveness and pardon. To know that God has indeed come to secure salvation from from certain and everlasting ruin that you're in. But God has come to rescue you. This is real and lasting peace. What kind of man was Simeon? What was his background? What were his worldly circumstances? Was he poor? Was he rich? Was he well-known or was he anonymous? Was he influential? Was he a nobody? Had he done well for himself in the world or achieved little? We don't know. And none of that matters in the slightest. The text suggests to us that he was elderly and would soon depart his mortal flesh. And regardless of what his earthly condition and his earthly estate had been, it was all soon to be left behind, and none of it had been able to provide him with the kind of peace that he knew that day. Here is a man who has treasure in heaven and knows it. Here is a man who is at peace because... He's convinced of Christ. Are you? Number two. According to God's word. According to God's word. Now in verse 29, Simeon is surely referring back to verse 26 and the promise that God had given him. But in verse 32, Simeon quotes from Isaiah. And bearing in mind what I said earlier about the Messiah of Israel not being just for Israel, but for the whole world, Simeon here 
shows us that even if in verse 29 he was only talking about that specific promise that God had given him about seeing the Messiah for himself, in verse 32 he demonstrates quite fully that he is a man of the word of God. He knows God's word. And he knows the exact scripture to quote. This baby is to be a light to the Gentiles. This baby is to be Israel's brightest glory. It's the promised one. Simeon knows God's word. Simeon trusts God's word. Simeon rests upon God's word. All of his hopes and expectations are according to what God has revealed to him in his word. And we see that Simeon isn't just thinking about himself. This child is for the whole world. This child is going to be a light to the Gentiles, not just for Israel. He's not concerned only about his own experiences and his own circumstances, but that the purposes and the decree of God are now going to be fulfilled in this infant who he holds in his arms. And here is a true man of faith. And again, you see how the Old Testament is crucial in providing the context and the setting for the arrival of Christ into the world. Without the Old Testament, we don't understand. Now, because of the nature of sinful hearts, which cannot help but reject the gospel, some people, of course, try to dismiss and reject the Bible in which the gospel is contained. But even if for one moment you put aside any religious or spiritual issues, the Bible as an ancient piece of literature is the best attested and most reliable piece of ancient literature of its type. Any secular literary specialist will tell you that. Add to it what we know about the Bible being the very word of God and how it comes to us then. But as Simeon gets to hold in his arms this little baby boy who is also the mighty God, what a blessing this is for this faithful man. As he looks into this child's face, he sees all of Scripture being fulfilled. And on account of that, his soul is flooded with peace and with thanksgiving and with praise. All those Scriptures known to this man all coming to their fulfilment in this little baby in his arms and then finally he sees God's salvation he sees God's salvation if you hear on Christmas day I mentioned those little blind fish that live in caves in Mexico in the darkness fish that are we might describe them as being twice blind. They dwell in an environment of complete darkness. But they also have no eyes to be able to see anyway. So even if the, even if the cave were flooded with light where they live, they'd still be in darkness because they don't have eyes. And the Bible pictures the sinful and pitiful state of our souls as being blind and in darkness. I'm certain that Simeon would have gladly traded everything that he ever had or had ever owned. 
He'd have traded in everything that he ever had accomplished or lived for, for those few minutes in the temple, holding Christ. He'd have given up everything for those few minutes. My eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen God's salvation. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that it's personal. My eyes have seen. This is so much more than simply something that Simeon has known about or heard about. My eyes have seen. God has been so gracious that he's come to me. God has made himself known to me. God cares about me. This Christ is for me. Can you say that this morning? That your eyes have seen God's salvation in the face of Christ? Because this is the soul that's found everlasting peace. Now this seeing, of course, is not just about physical sight. Plenty of other people in the temple that day would have seen that baby, but they didn't see what Simeon saw. They saw a young mum and dad doing something very familiar with their two pigeons or turtle doves. And they saw the little one wrapped in swaddling cloths, but they didn't see what Simeon saw. They only saw a baby. Simeon saw so much more. Simeon sees with eyes of longing and with eyes of expectation. And Simeon sees Christ with eyes of faith. Simeon sees in Christ the salvation of God that he needs and the salvation of God that he's been waiting for. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. We sing at Christmas. And Simeon did. Hail the incarnate deity. And Simeon did. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Simeon that day knew that God was with him because he had the eyes to see. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. That's what Simeon saw. Do you see in Jesus Christ the one who is your Lord and Saviour? The one who sees and recognises Christ for who he truly is. The one who is convinced in Christ. They are those who are at peace.